I'm going to get us right into God's word this morning. I have a lot for us. If you're uh, new with us, welcome. I'm always happy to meet you afterwards. But what we do here, we go verse by verse, really, usually most Sundays through the scriptures. Uh, this morning is going to be no different. This gentleman here or others, if you need a Bible, raise your hand. We'll get one to you. Um, but this morning is going to be no different. We're going to be going in uh, uh, the gospel of Luke here. We've been in this gospel for, I, I would say, probably a few years now. Uh, and now we're in uh, Luke 18, verses 35, and we're actually going to read into Luke 19, verse 10. Um, so starting in Luke 18, verse 35, I'll give you a moment to get there. We'll read this text, pray, and uh, dive in. All right, Luke 18, verse 35. As he, uh, being Jesus here, drew near to Jericho, a blind man was sitting by the roadside begging. And hearing a crowd going by, he inquired what this meant. They told him, Jesus of Nazareth is passing by. And he cried out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And those who were in front rebuked him telling him to be silent. But he cried out all the more, Son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stopped and commanded him to be brought to him. And when he came near, he asked him, What do you want me to do for you? He said, Lord, let me recover my sight. And Jesus said to him, Recover your sight. Your faith has made you well. And immediately he recovered his sight and followed him. Glorifying God and all the people when they saw it gave praise to God. Now Luke 19 verse 1. He entered Jericho and was passing through and behold there was a man named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was rich. And he was seeking to see who Jesus was but on account of the crowd he could not because he was small in stature. So he ran on ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him for he was about to pass that way. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. So he hurried and came down and received him joyfully. And when they saw it, they all grumbled. He's gone in to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. And Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor. And if I've defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. And Jesus said to him, Today, salvation has come to this house, since he also is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. Let's pray. Well, God, it's been my prayer That through this text and these stories and your word, we would encounter you today. That you would move through your word, by your spirit, and show yourself to us. Come after us in a personal way. God, let us be Zacchaeus. Let us be the blind beggar. Let us see ourselves in these stories and let us experience your love in this place as these men did. 
We know that you are on the move there in Jericho. We know that you're on the move here in San Jose. Even still today. And so, Lord, it's fun to come together on Sundays and to see one another. That's great. But more than anything, we want to see you. The blind man cries out. You open his eyes and he sees you. Zacchaeus climbs up the tree just to get a view of you. But you're the one that we want to see this morning. So I pray that in the preaching of your word and your gospel, you would come and you would stand forth before your people be seen. All your glory, all your grace, all your goodness. And you lead our hearts to worship. And bring transformation to our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. Um, okay, so I want to do real quick. I need to get us caught up to speed uh, a little bit in the flow of where we've been in Luke's gospel because uh, some of the stuff we're going to look at today uh, is going to tap into that a little bit, and I want us to see it. So if you were with us last time, uh, you might remember that we finished up the story of the rich ruler. It's the story that began back up in verse 18 of Luke 18. And there, just to give a brief recap for those who were there, those who weren't, uh, we meet this guy who comes up to Jesus and he says, Listen, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And it's clear that this guy feels like he's probably on the right track, that he's, he, he's kind of, he, he's gonna be able to kind of do this. He's already heading there. In fact, when Jesus gives him a list, he says, hey, you know what? Actually, I've been keeping that from my youth. This is looking good. And then Jesus, who sees through the externals of our behavior and into the heart, knows something about this man that perhaps he doesn't even know about himself. Namely, God is not sitting on the throne of his heart. No matter how many good deeds, religious deeds he wants to do. But his money is there. His money, his stuff is king. So Jesus puts his finger, loving the brother, puts his finger on that. He says, okay, you want eternal life. One thing you lack. Sell all that you have. Give to the poor. and Come follow me. Let go of that and you gain me. I says, I can't do that. And we read that he goes away, verse 23, very sad. So from the standpoint of the kingdom, we've, and, and the gospel and things, uh, we've just come off of, in Luke's gospel, what you might call a, a loss. You put this one down, mark this one down in the loss column for, for Jesus and what, what he's trying to do here, uh, uh, in, in Israel and in the world. The, the, this guy, there, there, there's no faith, there's no repentance, there's no salvation. He just kind of clings uh, almost in a, in a self-destructive, suicidal way to his stuff. If this ship is going down, I'm going down with it. If I have to let go of my toys to grab hold of eternal life, I'd rather live a, a decent life here and now and, and take my chances in what's to come. I can't let it go. So mark that one down as a loss, I suppose. But then... What we see as we keep reading is that we now come to two significant wins. 
The first uh, there in the first part of our text is this blind beggar. And the second is this chief tax collector that we meet in chapter 19 named Zacchaeus. Both of these men are brought into the kingdom of God, set on new footing in Christ, find salvation, eternal life and joy. Um, Let me just say this real quick. Um, Though there are two stories here. In case you're worried, you know how slow I typically go. I'm planning to do a flyover of the first one with this blind beggar. I'm planning to just kind of bring out a few themes because I think they'll be important and they'll be developed actually as we get into the story of Zacchaeus. I'm going to camp out largely on uh, the story that shows up there at the beginning of chapter 19 with this tax collector. But let's begin, if you will, with win number one. Uh, a blind beggar, this blind man. And uh, what, what I want to do with this is simply show you what I think Luke and the Holy Spirit through Luke is after by ordering the events the way that he does, highlighting the things that he does. I think with this story of this blind man coming off of the story of this rich man, we are inclined to uh, see the sort of contrast we're inclined to see uh, that there's this this contrast going on. Let me um, let me show you what I mean. I'll just kind of rifle through some of these. The rich ruler was, of course, we're told, verse twenty three, extremely rich. He didn't need no one for anything. He 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 could do it himself. He was self reliant, self uh, you know, independent, self sufficient. But this blind man, we're told, there, verse thirty five, is a beggar. He's in the place of need. He's he's there vulnerable on the side of the road, just holding out a hand. If if people don't drop in their pocket change, he doesn't need that day. That's his place. So extremely rich. We move to uh, extremely poor. The rich ruler asks Jesus what he must do to inherit eternal life. Verse 18. What do I got to do? I'm a capable individual. Give me the list. I'll do it. Then we see this blind man on the side of the road, this blind beggar. And the interesting thing is, is he not, he's not asking, what can I do to get into the kingdom? He's simply saying, what can you do for me? I can't do anything for you. I need you to have mercy on me. There's this amazing question. And again, it's a contrast with what just happened with this man who didn't make it into the kingdom. You see now, Jesus comes to this, this blind beggar and he says, what do you want me to do for you? It's amazing because he would say that to us. Part of the reason why we, 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 we resist and we stay out of the kingdom of God is because we're unwilling to humble ourselves and receive the fullness that he's wanting to give us. We don't want to admit we need it. We don't want to admit we need him to do something for us. Give me the list and I'll do it for you. That puts us in the place of pride and prominence and significance. The other place by the side of the road, no thank you. But the contrast is being developed here Uh, we see with the rich ruler that the crowds are surprised the crowds are surprised that the rich ruler should be excluded from the kingdom they say in verse 26 if not this rich ruler if he can't get into the kingdom who can be saved So there's this surprise that he could be excluded. But then we come to the blind beggar. And what we see is the crowds are equally as surprised. But now it's from the opposite direction. They are so surprised that he could, in fact, be included. 
This guy gets it. The rich guy goes out. The, 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 the annoying beggar crying out on the side of the road that we tried to silence gets in. Jesus has time for him. God has time for him, but passes up on this guy who could really bring some, you know, clout to our cause. Contrasts keep stacking up. The rich ruler, as we've already mentioned, goes away very sad. Verse 23. But this blind beggar at the end of his story doesn't go away at all. If you notice, he follows and he doesn't go away sad either. He follows and he is full of joy. Verse 43 of Luke 18, and immediately he recovered his sight and followed him, glorifying God. The idea is there's this eruption of praise. So the contrasts are, I think, are are, are intended to kind of strike at us here a bit. There's this lesson, this study in contrast. Here you have a guy who's so big in his own eyes, so prominent in his own eyes, and and God seems small. God seems insignificant and invaluable to such a degree that when he says, listen, you can either have your stuff or me, I'll take my stuff. And then you have a guy who's so small. He doesn't feel like he can even do any. He can't even get, he can't even walk himself. He probably has to have somebody hold him by the hand to go about his life. So small. And because of that, he's in the place to discover God as big and glorious and gracious. You have a guy who begins with everything, but in the end, we understand what will be left with nothing. And then you have a guy who starts with nothing. But in the end, we understand is given everything. It's beautiful. I think that's what Luke intends for us to see is this contrast. And then the question that emerges for you and I just quick this quick application point is simply this. Which man do you want to be? I mean, to, to be, you know, uh, which man or woman? Okay, well, you know, what I mean? which, which story do you want to be in? Which character, which person? Which story is yours? Are you running after the stuff? Let's be honest. A lot of times we're kind of following the, the track of the rich ruler, right? Like, That would be nice. Prominence, stature, authority, money, wealth. That sounds good. We kind of want to avoid where the beggar's at. I don't want to be there. There's social baggage and shame that comes with that. That doesn't sound good. If we're honest, a lot of times we're trying to push towards that story. And Jesus is saying, hold on. Trace it out. Study the contrasts. One man, no kingdom. The other man enters in with joy. Which do you want? Who do you want to be? Now, we move from there then to what I'd call win number two. Let's mark down the second one here. And I'm going to start to dive in a little further. And I'll actually give you kind of a uh, more of a sense of where we're headed for the morning uh, as we do. Because now we move towards Luke 19, verses 1 through 10. And this rich chief tax collector. Um, What I find is interesting and the reason why I wanted to spend a little bit of time recounting both these stories that have preceded this one is because it seems to me with Zacchaeus, with this rich tax collector, uh, chief tax collector, we actually kind of have both these two stories that that I just contrasted for us kind of merging and blending into one. 
It's a very interesting deal. We, we kind of see a little bit of, of, of the rich man's story here. And yet we also see the blind beggar start to kind of pop his head into this story as well and start to show up. Uh, some of the attributes of, of, of the, the, the beggar's story start to uh, uh, be found in this rich man, Zacchaeus. So you notice, I mean, for example, Zacchaeus, as we have said, is a rich man, just like that ruler. He is a man of status. He is a man of prominence. And yet, we also see that he's starting to take on some of the characteristics of the blind beggar. If you notice, he's starting to feel, I think, the insufficiency of his wealth. That it's not doing it for him. He's starting to feel, it would seem, some of the corruption of his own heart. He's starting to feel some of the desperation that he has for mercy. I think that's why he's clamoring up the tree. And something's going on in the heart of this man. You might see Zacchaeus as, as, as a man in motion. I think there's something happening that's moving him from the place of that rich ruler story. Moving him towards the, 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 the blind beggar. The place of need and desperation. Even though he still has the stuff. Something's happening in his heart. The stories, if you will, those two stories are colliding here into one. And now this, this is incredibly significant. This is incredibly significant. If you recall, and even if you weren't with us, some of you may be familiar with some of these verses um, that have, to some degree, become notorious uh, in Luke's gospel. But there, right before this, when when Jesus was, you know, talking to that rich ruler, and the guy goes away, and the disciples say, "Well, then who can be saved?" He says, "Listen, it's harder for a, a camel to get through the eye of, of a needle." And for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. They're too big. They think they're too great. The disciples hear that and go, okay, they understand what he's saying. It's impossible. That means it's not going to happen. Rich men and women don't get into the kingdom. They don't make it. That seems to be what Jesus is saying there. But then Jesus comes out in verse 27 of Luke 18. And he says this. What is impossible with man is possible with God. You see, God can break the attachments of the heart that we make with our stuff in this world. God can dispel the the, the curse of the devil that's had us enchanted with all of our stuff for so long. God can get the camel through the eye of the needle. God can get the rich man into the kingdom. God can do the impossible. And in our text, he's doing it. I think that's the point. God can make the rich ruler, the blind beggar in spirit. You start to see through the facade. The heart comes alive to the truest treasure. The kingdom of God and the value of God's love and grace. and Inheritance in him. He's about to do the impossible with this man Zacchaeus. And my prayer has been that he maybe is even about to do it with some of us. With me. We still get enchanted with all this stuff. Thinking it's going to satisfy. God, break that. God, open our eyes, right? So, I want to take Luke 19, 1 through 10 now. 
And I'm going to bring out what I'd refer to as um, three gospel movements. Three gospel movements that I see taking place in this text. Um, the gospel is kind of always moving us from one place and taking us to a better spot. So we see first uh, this move from corruption to curiosity in verses 1 through 4. And then second, this move from stranger to son in verses 5 through 10. And finally, we'll, we'll, we'll land on the idea of, of this move from Jericho to Jerusalem. So first, from corruption to curiosity. Um, as we come to verses 1 through 4 now, there, there are a few quick details that, that need to be discussed. And I'm going to try to go uh, quick through this because uh, I have more that I want to discuss later. But let me bring out a few details in verses 1 through 4 of Luke 19 that I think are important and will set us up. Well, uh, the first thing is there in verse two, we, we, we learn that this man Zacchaeus is what, what is called a chief tax collector. Now, in, in the Greek, I think this is the only time it shows up in the New Testament, this word chief tax collector. And I think I even saw that with that, outside the scriptures, this word doesn't even show up for uh, until maybe like the fourth century or so. So people don't know what this word exactly means, but here's what we can gather, it probably means that not only is Zacchaeus a tax collector there in, uh, in Jericho, he, he also probably was involved in overseeing, managing, enlisting others for the work, that sort of a thing. Chief tax collector. Now, if you are familiar with the New Testament, uh, you know that being a chief tax collector probably isn't a compliment I mean, nobody likes to pay their taxes, right? We're, we just finished up a year, and we're, okay, all right. You know, we probably start to think about taxes coming again or whatever. Nobody likes that. But in their day, it was something even more significant than just, oh, we have to pay. Tax collectors were detested um, at this time, particularly because they were uh, collaborators with Rome. So Rome was, was the authority over Israel there, and they were taxing the people even as they lived on their own land. And so tax collectors were partnering with Rome to fleece their own people, to fleece their, own, their brothers and sisters for the sake of this Gentile overlord. If you're familiar with some of the, the Old Testament understandings of cleanness, uncleanness, Gentile, I mean, you understand how significant this is. They were seen as traitors. But then even beyond that, tax collectors were notoriously corrupt. And they were known to use kind of unsavory methods to extort and to get the money that they wanted from their own people. And they would pocket whatever they could uh, get on the top. So it's, it's bad news. In fact, one of the things, because this will set us up a little bit later um, for you to kind of see how profound a statement Jesus makes to him is. Let me read you the words of one commentator here. I want, I want you to see this. Most of the local tax collectors, he writes, were ethnic but not observant Jews. Since Torah conscious Jews could not be expected to transact business with Gentiles. Tax collectors made bids in advance to collect taxes in a given area. And their profit came from what they could extort from their constituents. The Roman tax system depended on graft and greed, and it attracted individuals who were not adverse to such means. An honest tax collector was, in principle, a starving tax collector. Tax collectors were despised and hated. In the Jewish oral law, uh, we have preserved scathing judgments of them from later periods, lumping them together with thieves and murderers. A Jew who collected taxes was a cause of disgrace for his family. 
expelled from the synagogue, disqualified as a judge or witness in court. The touch of a tax collector rendered a house unclean. Jews were forbidden from receiving money, including alms from tax collectors, since tax revenues were deemed robbery. Tax collectors were tangible reminders of the Roman domination. Detested alike for its injustice and Gentile uncleanness. Not a few Jewish extremists, including one of Jesus' disciples, namely Simon the Zealot, considered submission to the Roman tax system an act of treason. So that just fills out for you what tax collector means. And if you're going, okay, wait a minute, he's chief. Chief just means you could take all that and add italics, underline it, bold it, to a greater degree, that. That's this man, Zacchaeus. That's important detail number one. Second detail that's important comes there in verse two, and it follows off of this one, and it makes sense. Because he is the chief tax collector there, we're told that he was rich. And I think again, right here, Luke is trying by with this detail to to make that connection for us between the rich ruler and the rich who God, who Jesus says, listen, it's too hard to get them into the kingdom. It would be easier to get a, a camel through the eye of the needle, but God can do it. He's intended to kind of, I think Luke is trying to get us to see that connection. This man was nasty. This man was wealthy. So reading at this point, you might be inclined to think, okay, well, we're about to watch another loss. We're about to see a guy who, again, feels he's too prominent, too important for the kingdom. And not, not quite. Because as we keep reading, we see that something has begun to shift inside of him. Something is going on that seems a little different. Something of the blind beggar's story begins to break in there in verse 3. I think. Now, I've often wondered about this silly little detail, right? That, that, that Zacchaeus was a man small in stature. All right. I was five foot tall going into high school or whatever. I, I was, I was, you know, hated on for being small for uh, most of my early life. So I still, even though I'm now average, thank you very much, have this sort of like small man complex, you know, like, like, would you, like I got to prove myself or whatever. Uh, and I'm just looking at this and I'm going, what, why this detail that he was this man small in stature. I mean, is that just to kind of shame him, poke fun at him? Like, dude, like, guess what? In, you know, a few, you know, centuries, millennia later, there are going to be kids gathered around singing, Zacchaeus was a wee little man and a wee little man, or however that song goes, right? Like, if, listen, if you're a man, that does not make you feel good. You don't want to be called a wee little man, okay? So I said, I said, what is the point of this? I don't think there's a word in the scriptures that's irrelevant. If you can't tell by the way I preach. Why is that there? Well, I'll tell you why I think it's there. I think it's there to emphasize how this rich man is in more ways than one starting to resemble the blind beggar. I think it's a collision of, of, of stories here. And I'll show you why. You can tell me afterwards if you think I'm reaching. But in the first case, in this crowd, it seems he's starting to feel small and insignificant. Everyone's just passing by and he can't really, you know, get a hold of what's going on because he's a man small. He's a wee little man. 
But then we come to realize also that he literally cannot see. That's the problem. We just come off the story of a blind beggar crying out, help me, can't see. And here now we come to a man, small, so small, in fact, that he can't see. But then it also starts to highlight for us that he's like the blind beggar in the sense of his persistence. Because just like the blind beggar, they're saying silent, quiet, shush, man. Jesus is more important than, than you're not going to deal with you right now. Quiet down. In the same way that that blind beggar kept crying out anyways, persistent. This Zacchaeus, this chief tax collector, small as he was, says, now listen, I've got to see Jesus. He runs on ahead and he climbs up a tree just to catch a view. It's not to make a cute little children's song. It's to highlight something's going on in this man's heart. Something's happened. Something's beginning to shift. He's starting to take on attributes of this blind beggar. My guess is here that for Zacchaeus, uh, perhaps the corruption he's long embraced in his heart or long embraced is starting to give way to a sort of curiosity. He's starting to perhaps open up to other possibilities. My, my hunch is that he's experienced, he's tasted something of the haunting emptiness that comes with all the world's goods. Like you get it, you have it, and, and if you're honest, you keep kind of going, is that it? I, I kind of thought there would be more. And so I think maybe there's this sort of haunting emptiness that's opening him up to alternate possibilities. Maybe it's not in money and stuff. I cut off everyone to get money and stuff. And I'm rethinking this. Maybe there's something to this Jesus of Nazareth, God. Maybe. Now, um, I remember seeing an old interview uh, with um, Matt Damon. I don't know. Somehow I came to it online. I don't remember how. I don't know who Graham Norton is, but there's a Graham Norton show, and he's interviewing Matt Damon years after now. Um, he had won the, the, the Oscar there for um, his work with Goodwill Hunting. He was only 27 at the time, right? And I think it won like best original screenplay or something. Him and Ben Affleck come up, and it's kind of funny to watch. And, but anyways, this is now, I don't know how many years later, but this, uh, this uh, talk show host or whatever is sitting down to interview him about that time. About that day and what that was like. And the guy clearly thinks that, that, that Matt's going to kind of talk about how exhilarating and exciting and amazing it was. Like, tell me about that night, man. Wasn't it just awesome? And Matt just kind of flips it in this really interesting way. And I want you to hear it. So Graham Norton asks this. That night must have sent you into a tailspin. Did you go crazy that actual night? Did you go nuts? Here's Matt's response. Actually, and I have to edit it. I censor it a little bit. Sorry. (laughs) Even censoring it. If there are kids, you might want to put it. But actually, I I remember very clearly going back and I couldn't sleep. I was just kind of still buzzing and I was sitting there. And I remember very clearly looking at that award, that little Oscar statue thing, and thinking very, very clearly. I literally looked at it. I was alone with it. And I said to myself, thank God I didn't screw anybody over for this. 
And I suddenly had this thing wash over me where I thought, imagine chasing that and not getting it and getting it finally in your 80s or your 90s with all of life behind you and realizing what an unbelievable waste. You know what I mean? Because it can't fill you up. If that's a hole that you have, that won't fill it. And I felt so blessed to have that awareness at 27 to learn it because I wouldn't have known it otherwise. And my heart broke for a second. It's like I imagined another one of me, an old man going like, oh my gosh, where did my life go? What have I done? And then it's over. I'm always on the lookout for these sorts of things because the world, and again, I think I brought up one with Jim Carrey a few weeks ago, and, and, and now here's another one with Matt Damon, and I understand that these guys don't necessarily run all the way to the gospel, but what they do get is something is off with what we typically think is going to fill and satisfy. It, it doesn't. And so they, may, they might go, oh no, it's actually relationships, and then you just watch how Hollywood relationships go, and you go, okay, probably that's not it either. Something's going on, but... They start to see it. And I think that with Zacchaeus here in our text, something like this is probably what he's experiencing. Except the thing is, you know, Matt Damon says, whoo, thank goodness I didn't screw anybody over to get this reward. Zacchaeus looks back and he goes, well, goodness gracious, I've thrown country and kin under the bus for this. I made shipwreck. Of my own people, family, whatever, for this. My guess is the key is maybe sitting alone in a room, looking at all his stuff. Going, what a waste. This is it. There's got to be something more. So he's curious. He's ready to look elsewhere. And I wonder, are you? Are you still thinking that, you know, yeah, I got to chase the dollar, chase the relationship, chase the job, chase the house, whatever it may be. And when I get it, yes, no, when you get it, you'll sit alone with it and you'll go, that's it. I thought there'd be more. And maybe then with Zacchaeus, we're ready to actually look to to see Jesus. So now, second gospel movement here, verses 5 through 10. From stranger to son. From stranger to son. I want to make four observations about these verses and draw out applications for us along the way. You'll see them in your handout if you got one when you came in. Observation number one. Jesus sees and he knows. Jesus sees and he knows. Uh, we, we can uh, see this there in verse 5. When Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus. Now, here's what's incredible. To this point in the narrative, we thought it was all about Zacchaeus climbing up a tree to see Jesus. But what we come to find out is that really the turning point, the significant shift is when Jesus walks up and he sees him. And he knows him. Right off the top. And he calls him by name. And we have no indication that he knew him other than he is God and he already saw him. He already knows him. This would have baffled Zacchaeus. I think it's the kind of thing we see Jesus do every now and then. He just kind of flexes his divinity, right? Every now and then he's like, yeah, yeah, I know I'm a man, but I'm also God. And uh, right. Uh, So we see this with Nathaniel. He does this with Nathaniel, John 1, 48. Nathaniel asked Jesus, how do you know me? 
Because Jesus just says some things about him. And they're like, wait, what? How do you know me? And Jesus answers him, before Philip called you, Nathaniel, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. You're like, that's creepy? That's either creepy or that's amazing. Either you're stalking me or you're God. Because I was under that tree alone. You see, the amazing thing is, is before Zacchaeus even you know, comes after Jesus and tries to catch a view of him, Jesus already sees him. Jesus already knows him. And I thought, man, what a, what a profound observation for us. Because, hey, I, if you're anything like me, I think so much of our life, so much of our life is lived trying to get people to see us, know us, value us, esteem us, consider us significant, to know we were worth something, right? And yet what's awesome is, is it, the gospel begins with this idea that, listen, stop that, that rat race, stop that mess. It's never going to be enough. You're going to keep having to clean up. And if, if you're known for being beautiful, well, then you're going to suddenly get old and you're going to have to do the nip and tuck and all this stuff. And then you're just going to, you know, like to keep it going. Listen, you're already seen. You don't need six figure, you know, salary to feel worth something. You're already seen. You're already known. You're already loved. That's how the gospel begins. That's how the story begins with Zacchaeus. I don't know what uh, the, 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 the tone of voice was here as Jesus begins to talk to him and calls him by name. I don't know the look in his eyes, but I imagine already the ice is starting to melt. Wow. Now this is doing something for me that the money and the stuff didn't. Known and loved. and Starts to thaw out your heart a bit if you let that in. Observation number two. Jesus must stay at his house. Jesus must stay. This is, uh, this is awesome. Look at the latter part of verse 5 now. Zacchaeus, uh, Jesus says, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. Now again, I'm just going to slow you down. Half my job is, is getting you to slow down and see what's actually here. Let that must kind of sit on you for a moment. How does it feel? I mean, when I kind of sat on that, I thought, Jesus is just asking. He's saying, listen, I'm coming over. <laughs> put, put, you know, put a chicken in the oven. I'm coming over. Let's go. Now, we read the must there and we kind of think, gosh, it sounds like he's just kind of pushing his way in. Sounds kind of like if you've ever had kind of the, the unwanted house guest that's kind of like, hey, I'm here. You know, like, <laughs> I hate to say it, but I mean, it's coming off the Christmas season. Uh, I just naturally was already thinking of Uncle Eddie from uh, National Lampoon's Christmas Vacation. If you guys know the movie, I can't say I recommend the movie. I don't know. I like it. Uh, but, but, you know, the guy shows up in his RV like the night before Christmas with his whole family. Just makes a big mess of everything. Unannounced, here I am. Is that what this is? I must stay at your house. Not may I please? That, well, that would seem to be the gentlemanly way to do things. Why? I must. Get your house ready. I'm coming over. I have to. Why this must here? I don't think it's Jesus being rude. Two things I'll bring out that I think are in play. 
first. I think it's likely actually that Jesus presses himself upon Zacchaeus in this way because he knows had he simply asked, Zacchaeus would have objected, though not in his obstinance, but in his shame. I want to sit on that one for a moment because I imagine that this is perhaps even true of some of us, even in this room right now, where um, in light of who we are, in light of what we've done, we may hear about this Jesus guy, you know, from this little dude up here, this, this wee little man uh, here on the stage or whatever. We might hear about Jesus and how he loves people, but we kind of always have this thing in the back of our head that says, not for me. My mom and daddy, they rejected me. They hated me. My, you know, I've, I've never been accepted because I did X, Y, and Z. I got all this junk. Like, imagine Zacchaeus' story. Like, no, are you kidding? Everyone here is going to hate you if you come to my house. You understand that? They all hate me. You're not coming, man. I appreciate the gesture, but no, you're well suited somewhere else. The shame would have would have caused him to kind of push back on that. Like, I'm not worthy of that. I don't deserve that. It wouldn't be right. And yet, you see, grace sometimes gets aggressive. And some of us need that aggressive sort of grace to hear, listen, I know you're not worthy. I know what you've done. For goodness sake, I just called you by name, bro. I know. And I love you anyways. I want a fellowship with you anyways. I'm coming in anyways. Grace gets aggressive. I must stay at your house. You're not going to deny me. Beautiful. That's why I named the sermon when grace pushes in. I know there are some of us that probably feel that. Jesus, I'm coming in. I don't care how you feel. I love you. It seems to me that the grace of God initially at least has two obstacles to overcome before it can really bring transformation to a person. The first is to convince you that you truly need it. The second is to convince you that you can truly have it. Truly need it? Conviction of sin. Most of us go, we're fine. When you start to come under conviction, like perhaps Zacchaeus was, then you need grace to convince you that you could truly have it. Like, I don't have to pay it back. I don't have to earn it. I don't have to, wait, let me get it right. No, it's yours. And then transformation can begin, as we'll see in a moment. The second thing I'll just bring out here uh, regarding this idea of, of must, I must stay at your house, is just simply this. Um, Jesus and, and actually uses this language often throughout Luke's gospel. Um, and very regularly, in the Greek it's almost like this, it's this formulaic expression. And very regularly what it's doing is pointing to the almost matter-of-fact nature of the divine plan of God. Like with the plan of God, there is no maybe, there is no might, there is just must. And so Jesus will say things like, I must go to Jerusalem and die. I must stay at your house. Like there is something going on where the sovereignty of God has marked Zacchaeus in grace. Marked him for grace. I'm, you don't understand, brother. I must come over. It's, it's beautiful. It, there are not... 
God doesn't move kind of in these whims and kind of, oh, I hope and this or that. No, he's like we saw perhaps last week um, with Tolu, Ephesians 1, where he says he works all things according to the counsel of his will. I must. Here we go. All right. Uh, in my manuscript, I have other texts you can look at that kind of make the case for that. You can find that online if you're interested. Uh, observation number three, then. Zacchaeus is transformed. He is transformed. Look at verse eight. So after Jesus, after grace kind of pushes its way in, after Jesus comes over and Zacchaeus experiences this, 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 this welcome, this acceptance, this love that comes to him from this man that he, he does not deserve it. He knows that. Listen, something happens in his heart and he's transformed. He's changed from the inside out. So we see verse eight. Here's what happens. Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anything of, or anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. Here, if you will, is the camel starting to make its way through the eye of the needle. Here is the rich man starting to enter the kingdom of heaven. Here is God doing the impossible in this man's heart. The things that he has fought up to this point, tooth and nail for. The things that he has cut off, all family members, all you know, country and kin to get. He is now happily, joyfully releasing. Because he's experienced in Jesus something so much more satisfying. I don't, I don't, I don't need it anymore. It's not sitting on the throne of my heart anymore. That king... Has been deposed. Is that the right word? I don't know. That's the word? Okay. There's a new king. And you see the generosity and compassion of Christ makes us generous and compassionate people. We love because he first loves us. That love snaps the, uh, uh, the, the, uh, you know, the, the attachments we've made with stuff. Now we can release it freely. Because we know one who's caring for us more than anything else. He'll provide. He got my back. He knew my name before we even met. Pretty sure he can handle my pantry or my bank account. Zacchaeus is transformed. Now, I do think that there's something that we should bring up here because it's, it's, there's a question that we sometimes have and uh, an error that we sometimes fall into. Do we clean up before we come to God? Do we clean up so we can come to God? Or do we come to God so that we can get cleaned up? From one angle, you could look and go, see, he's now he's paying back. He's trying to earn the welcome and this or that. No, that's why I think grace comes in first. That's why Jesus first gets to the house, shows him the acceptance and the love. Then you see the transformation. It is not. It is not. Get cleaned up, Zacchaeus, and then I'll come into your house. It is I'm coming into your house and that cleans him up. Right? You don't come to church and play a game and put on a show and act all pretty and think you've got to kind of get nice before you can be here. You come in here a disaster. You come in here a train wreck. 
And you let Jesus meet you in the snot. You let Jesus meet you in the tears. That's where he can do his greatest work. In fact, if we're not willing to let him go to that space with us, we won't truly be transformed. We'll just become Pharisees. And we'll become a different kind of nasty. You bring him that stuff and you let him love you in that space. That will change you. And you will never find yourself looking down the nose of another person again. Because they're just like you and need the same grace that you were given. Freely. That's transformative. That's transformative. Observation number four. Salvation has come. Salvation has come. We're almost done. I'm starting to round towards home here. Uh, the, the, we, we just let the wheels out of the airplane. We're about to come in for landing. Don't worry. <laughs> Observation number four. Salvation has come. Verse nine. Look at this. Jesus said to him, today salvation has come to this house since he also is a son of Abraham. Now, um, Jesus refers to Zacchaeus here as a son of Abraham. Now, this is significant for a couple of reasons. The first is just simply because what we know from uh, Scripture, he's basically marking him off as, listen, you are of true Israel. You have the faith of Abraham. I see that going on here. You are a part of true Israel, the covenant community of God. Right? The true people. You're a son of Abraham. Paul would say that even us Gentiles, by faith in Christ, can become children of Abraham. We, we're brought into the family of God, the people of God. That's part of it. Bearing fruit and keeping repentance. God can make sons of Abraham from stones. The real sons are bearing this fruit. You're doing that. That's what he's saying. It's beautiful. I'm going quickly through that because I think there's something deeper to this. I want you to hear it. See, Jesus always knows the right thing to say. That just kind of gets at the heart. Untangles the knots. Restores our, our, our identity in him. Fills us with joy. And you've got to think, remember with me now. This is why I read you that commentator's long description of tax collectors and all this stuff. For this moment, right here. Think about Zacchaeus' life to this point. Think of the profession he chose and what that meant for him and his community here among the Jewish people. He estranged himself from them. He collaborated with the enemy. He worked alongside Gentiles, rendering himself unclean. He put aside the Torah and said, I don't really care about it. I care about the bottom line and profit. He sided with Israel's enemy. His family likely may well have disowned him. Certainly his own countrymen despised him. That's why he hears the murmuring outside this house. He hears what the crowds are saying as Jesus goes in, verse 7. He's gone in to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. Yuck! It's disgusting! What is Jesus doing in that man's filthy house? He hears what's being said by his own, his own country and kin outside the doors of this house. But inside the house, he hears something entirely different. Inside the house, he's looking into the eyes of Jesus. And Jesus is saying, I don't care what they're saying about you out there. Let them talk. 
They have plenty to say about me as well. You, my friend, are a son of Abraham. You're in the family. You get it. Welcome home. I don't think we can exaggerate what that would have meant to this man. And the thing is, is Jesus would say similar to us. He'd say similar to us. Do you feel like an outcast, like a stranger? I call you son. I call you daughter. Third and finally here, here's the last gospel movement for us, and this is where I'm going to close. We see this, this move from Jericho to Jerusalem. From Jericho to Jerusalem. With this, I'm simply bringing our attention back up to Luke 19, verse 1, the first verse of this story, where we read this. He entered Jericho, and he was passing through. Passing through. To us, that seems perhaps like a minor, insignificant detail. For Luke, it is exploding with importance. He will not let us forget that Jesus is not just going to stop here, camp out, and, 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 and you know make his little space in Jericho. He will not let us forget that Jesus is on a journey. He is passing through Jericho and he is going somewhere. Where is he going, you ask? I'm glad you asked. He just told us, Luke 18, 31 through 33. If you remember from last time, this is what Jesus says. Taking the 12, he said to them, see, we are going up to where? Jerusalem. Why? And everything that is written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished. For he will be delivered over to the Gentiles and will be mocked. And shamefully treated and spit upon. And after flogging him, they will kill him. And on the third day, he will rise. Here's why he's passing through Jericho. He's en route to Jerusalem to suffer and die. And that cannot go unnoticed. Because here's the thing, brothers and sisters. Everything he's doing in Jericho is dependent upon what he's going to do in Jerusalem. He's offering salvation freely to Zacchaeus. By grace, right here, man, salvation has come to this house. Why? How? Because he knows that come come a few days later, a few weeks later, whatever it is, I haven't done the timeline yet, I'm not there. But he knows that a few days, weeks later, he's going to be picking up the tab. They're on the cross. Free for Zacchaeus, I'll pay on the cross in Jerusalem. And if I don't go there, this check I offered here is going to bounce. No salvation, no forgiveness of sins, no acceptance, no son of Abraham. You deserve God's wrath. That is true. It is absolutely right. The conviction we have of our sin, the awareness that man Zacchaeus was nasty, I'm nasty, what are we doing? This, this is, this is real. It is sin. It is disgusting. We deserve God's judgment. But the gospel is that Jesus was going through Jericho to Jerusalem where he would pick up the tab for you and me. And he would pay. It's perhaps a crude analogy, but it might help you understand the movement of uh, the way the gospel kind of unfolds even throughout the Old and New Testaments. It's almost like 
God is kind of paying for this sort of grace and salvation things on credit prior to the cross. Okay? You pay on credit, it's like, this feels fun, this is kind of nice, I can get all sorts of stuff. And then all of a sudden the bill comes due and you go, "Uh uh-oh. Right? And so all throughout the Old Testament and the Gospels and things, we see, we see, even before the cross, the Holy Spirit, the Father, the Son, moving redemptively, saving, doing work. But it's all, though, before the cross, it's all with a view to the cross. It's like paying for something on credit, and at Calvary there in Jerusalem, the bill comes due, the creditors are knocking on the door, and Jesus will not, he must not, be late. Zacchaeus made his fortune by cutting off other Israelites and things, his own people, Jews, to, to get it. Well, if Zacchaeus is going to get into the kingdom of heaven, one more Jew is going to need to be cut off. Only this time Zacchaeus won't have to wrangle his arm or twist or cheat or swindle. This man is going to go willingly. Let himself be cut off from the living for the sake of sinners like Zacchaeus, you and me. He offers that salvation to you this morning freely. Not because it's cheap. Cost him everything. It's free for us. Let's pray. Lord, we give you the glory, our salvation, through and through. You're the author of it. You break the, 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 the attachments our hearts make with stuff. You open our blind eyes to see you as more worthy, more valuable. You wash us of our sin. Pay for our rebellion. Experience our judgment. Give us your inheritance. Get the victory over our enemies, Satan, sin, and death. God, you are worthy of our praise. And that's why now we lift our praise to you like the blind beggar who followed after you, glorifying God. That's what we want to do here and now, even in this place. In Jesus' name, amen.